It's come to my attention that there are a series of misunderstandings concerning Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. There are misunderstandings in particular about that word virgin. That word virgin means exactly what it says. It means virgin. It doesn't mean a young maiden. It doesn't just mean an unmarried woman. It means a virgin. This this question has been dealt with and put to rest over and over again throughout history. But the best explanation that I have heard on this is by Arnold Fruchtenbaum of Ariel Ministries. He's the founder of Ariel Ministries. That's A R I E L. And you can reach his website at ariel.org. In his series entitled Messianic Christology, what the Old Testament taught about Messiah, he covered this quite extensively. And I'm going to play right here exactly what he has to say on the subject, and I think it will be very clear to you. And I'm citing that is taken directly from an audio tape of his. The quality is not excellent. However, it certainly gets the message across. And I will continue from this point with Dr. Fruchtenbaum. King Tepashnadez of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezim, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. It was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. His heart trembled, and the heart of his people, so as the trees of the forest tremble in the wind. But to understand the historical background, at this point of history, there was an empire arising that was threatening the smaller kingdoms of the Middle East. That empire was the Assyrian Empire. And among the smaller kingdoms included three key ones for our passage here. That was Syria, which should be kept distinct from Assyria, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the two kingdoms of Syria and Israel chose to put their armed forces together to try to undo the Assyrian threat. When they put their armies together, they realized they did not have enough military might yet to be able to conquer the Assyrians, and so they asked Judah to join with them. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, refused. And so two kings of Syria and Israel conspired. And the content of their conspiracy was that they would unseat not only Ahaz, but had they stopped there, they might have succeeded. But they would not only unseat Ahaz, but they would depose the entire house of David and set up a new dynasty that would be more favorable to an alliance against the Assyrians. So in verses 1 and 2, the two kingdoms of Syria and Israel aligned their own forces together. And verse 2 emphasizes not only Ahaz in particular, but the house of David in general. Now again, if they merely conspired to unseat Ahaz, God might not have intervened. 
a super conspiracy went to the point of deposing the entire house of David. If they succeed in doing so, the Davidic covenant, the covenant we have just looked at, that God made with David, would not be rendered null and void. And God's covenants can never be rendered null and void. But I have, not being a believer, but I worship of idolatry, is very much afraid of the two armies not coming against them. At this point in verse 3 through 9, God gives a message to Ahaz. In verse 3, Isaiah is given a commission. Then said Jehovah unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, Saul, and Sha'al Yashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fullest field. Isaiah is given a specific commission. And there are two things in this commission. Number one, he is to meet Ahaz, who is inspecting the water supplies in preparation for a siege. But secondly, he also is told to bring his son with him. And there's a purpose for why the son must be there. And the son is Sha'ar Yeshuv, a name that means a remnant will return. In verses 4 through 6, the message for Ahaz is given and describes the plot itself. Say unto him, Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither let thy heart be faint, because of these two tales of smoking firebrands. For the first anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have purposed evil against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein for us and set us up a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. The message to Ahaz in verse 4, first of all, is that he is not to be afraid. He is not to fear the two kings, the kings of Israel and Syria, that are now aligned themselves against the house of David. Verses 5 and 6 spell out the conspiracy itself. They want to make a breach in Jerusalem's walls and then conquer it only sufficiently enough so they can depose the house of David and set up a new dynasty in verse 6, the dynasty of Tabeel. Now, Isaiah is a master of Hebrew, likes to play Hebrew word games, and he plays such a word game in verse 6. The name Tabeel means God is good. But the way Isaiah gives the vowel pointings, he changes a slight vowel sound, and then comes out to mean good for nothing. So the name that means God is good, this one will prove to be good for nothing. Because the conspiracy to make him the head of a new dynasty of Jerusalem will not succeed. Then in verses uh, 7 and 8, in verse 7 he spells out the conspiracy will not succeed. In verses 8 and 9, God will judge the two kings of the conspiracy. 
about the message to Ahaz, he has nothing to fear. The conspiracy has gone beyond that which God will permit any success. But Ahaz is not a worshiper of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Although he was a Jew, he had fallen to the worship of idolatry. And so he's not going to take Isaiah's word at random. Furthermore, he'd already made his own plans. He'd already written letters and sent gold to the Assyrian emperor to ask the empire of Assyria to help him against these two kings. He would rather trust the Assyrians than to trust the God of Israel. So in verse 10 comes forth another message. Jehovah said again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask the sign of Jehovah thy God, ask either in the depth or in the height above. They have said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt Jehovah. In verses 10-11, God offers to Ahaz a sign. Whatever will take Ahaz to be convinced, there is no need to fear but to trust God, not to trust the Assyrians. Whatever it takes for Ahaz to be convinced, let him ask for it, and God will do it. Now the word sign in of itself does not require a miracle. The word sign could be natural, could also be miraculous. But the context here obviously demands there will be a miracle because it is something that will require the convincing of the mind of Ahaz. So God says you can ask for the sign anywhere you want. In heaven you will get it in heaven. On earth you will get it on earth. Below the earth you will even get it down there. Whatever it takes to convince you, whatever it takes for you to believe me, ask. It will be done. But suddenly Ahaz, the uh, worship of idols, gets very spiritual in verse 12. I will not tempt Jehovah. He's quoting Deuteronomy, but the misquote because what Deuteronomy teaches we must not ask God for signs. In this case, God is offering him a sign, and so it would not be disobedience to Deuteronomy for him to request a sign, the specific sign, since God already made the offer to him. The real reason why Ahaz is refusing the offer is not because he is suddenly becoming spiritual. But rather, if he asks for a sign, if that sign does come to pass, he is going to have to give up his pro-Assyrian plans and ask the king of Assyria to rescue him. Now comes the crucial segment in verses 13-14. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to worry men that you will worry my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now verse 13, notice who he's addressing. No longer is it Ahaz in particular. It is now the entire house of David. One of the reasons that we lose the full force of what's happening here is because in English we do not distinguish between a singular and a plural you. When I say you, I may mean one of you, I may mean all of you. The Hebrew, however, has two different forms for you. One is singular and one is plural. 
in verses 10, 11, and 12, only the singular was used because he was addressing Ahaz. But in verses 13 and 14, he now uses the plural you because he's now addressing the house of David. The sign he's about to give is not for Ahaz, but rather it is for the entire house of David. Now, I said in English, we do not distinguish between a plural and a singular you, but there is one exception that is here in Texas. We do make distinctions. You is singular and you all is plural. Now let me read this the way a Texan should read it, which will be quite in keeping with the Hebrew text. Let's go back to verse 10. And Jehovah spake against Ahaz, saying, Ask you a sign of Jehovah your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, either will I tempt Jehovah. And he said, Hear you all now, O house of David. Is a small thing for you all to worry men that you all will worry my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The promises in verse 14 is not a sign to Ahaz. It is a sign to the whole house of David. Let's break this down a little bit further. Okay, verse 14, the word behold. The Hebrew word behold is a word that always calls attention to something, but by itself it might be present, past, or future. However, Grammatically, whenever the word behold is used with the Hebrew present participle, it always refers to a future event. And here we do have the use of the Hebrew uh, after participle. Therefore, it deals with something that is future. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And note carefully. It is not merely the birth that is future, the very conception is still future. He's not talking about a pregnant woman that will give birth for the next nine months. The very conception is still future itself. Then he says, the virgin. Now if you're using a King James Version, if they have a virgin, that is incorrect. The Hebrew text uses the definite article, the virgin. Now again, by laws of Hebrew grammar, when it uses the definite article, the, the first rule to apply is to look for someone in the immediate previous context. But we have looked from verse 1 onward, and no woman has been mentioned. Yet Isaiah is dealing with not a virgin, but one specific virgin, the virgin. When you do not have one in the immediate context, you follow the law that says the law of previous reference, meaning it is, has been dealt with much earlier and is common knowledge among the people. And where was there ever a concept of a the virgin giving birth to a son? 
And that concept we saw this morning back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the Messiah would be reckoned after the seed of the woman. And because that goes contrary to the biblical norm, normally it's after the seed of the man, the only reason that that is a necessity is because of a virgin birth where there will be no human father involved. It is the virgin of Genesis 3.15 that he's dealing with here. Now, the big debate is where the word here really means virgin. Let's compare three Hebrew words. The first word on the screen there is the word na'orah. The word as such simply means damsel and is often translated that way. The word itself could be either a virgin or a non-virgin. It's used of a virgin in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 2. It's used of a non-virgin in Ruth chapter 2 verse 6. The second word is the word that we often are told would have been the word Isaiah would have used if he really meant virgin, and that is the word Betulah. We are told by many that Betulah is the common Hebrew word for virgin, and if Isaiah really wanted to teach virgin birth, that's the word he would have used. Now while it is true that Betulah often does mean virgin, it's not always true. For example, in Joel chapter 1 verse 8, it's used of a widow, who clearly would not be a virgin. Furthermore, often when the word is used in the Hebrew text, because by itself it is not enough evidence to imply virginity, the writer has to explain what he means by it. For example, let's look at Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24. Okay, verse 16 of Genesis 24. And the damsel, this word here is the first one you'll list there, Naora, was very beautiful to look upon, a virgin or a betula. Now since the word by itself does not exclusively mean virgin, notice he has to explain what he means by it. Neither had any man known her. That phrase, neither had any man known her, would have been unnecessary if the word was sufficient. But the word by itself does not always mean virgin, and therefore he has to give his explanation. A second example is the book of Judges, chapter 21. Judges, chapter 21. Verse 12 of Judges 21. And they found among inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins. Again, the word is Betulah. But because the word by itself does not necessarily prove virginity, he asked the phrase, They had not known man by lying with him. It is that phrase that emphasizes that what they mean by Betulam is in this case a virgin. If the word itself connoted that exclusively, that phrase would be unnecessary. 
another was very good reason why they chose not to use that word. Let's look at the third word, in the one that's used in Isaiah 7:14, the word Alma. The word Alma does mean virgin, and in particular, it means a young virgin, a virgin of marriageable age. The word is used a total of seven times in the Hebrew text. Not once is it ever used of a married woman. That point, by the way, is not debated. The word is never used of a married woman. Now, because that point is not debated, just follow uh, that in your mind for a second. Now, the other six places where this is found are, first of all, Genesis 24, verse 43. There's used of Rebecca. Now, we just looked at Genesis 24, and in verse 16, it used the term Betula. Then you have to explain Betula to mean that she had not known any man. But in verse 43, he uses the term Alma. He doesn't have to explain what that term means. And clearly, in the context, she is a virgin. The second place it's found is Exodus chapter 2, verse 8, where it's used of Miriam, the sister of Moses, also a virgin. The third place it's found is Psalm 68, verse 25 where it deals with the virgins used in a procession, a royal procession. In that context, the king is God himself. And obviously God would not use unchaste women who are not married in his funeral, in his uh, kingly procession. The fourth place is the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3 where it's found in a context emphasizing the purity in marriage. The fourth, or the fifth place, the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 8, where the term is used in contrast to wives and concubines, both of which are non-virgins, but this group is. And the other last place besides Isaiah, the sixth place is Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19, which used in a contrast to an unchaste woman, an adulteress, in verse 20. So one thing is clear. In the other six places that the word is used in the Hebrew scriptures, it is clearly used of virgins. There's no need to make Isaiah 7.14 the one exception. Now the fact that all agree that an alma always refers to an unmarried woman, though not all agree that it refers to a virgin. Those who say that it refers to an unmarried woman that herself is not a virgin, that there are a problem here. Because who is giving the sign in verses 13 and 14? God is giving the sign. And there will be a great deal of problems 
small problems that God gives a sign in the realm of illegitimacy. Actually, you only have two options, and if this is an unmarried woman, which I'll agree, you only have two options here. Either we have an illegitimate birth, which is no special sign, by the way, it happens all the time, or you have a virgin birth. That is a sign. That's convincing. One more thing about this verse, the word Emmanuel. The one who is naming the child this title is God. In the Bible, whenever parents name a child, it merely shows the thinking of the parents. Maybe it will be so, but maybe not. Whenever God names a child in the scriptures, it always emphasizes the very nature of that child. The name Emmanuel means with us God. With us God. That shows us character. God among us. So let me draw some conclusions here. Number one, this, ha- this sign in verse 12 and 13 and 14 is specifically a sign to the house of David. Remember, they're the ones being threatened, not merely Ahaz. Secondly, all seven usages of the word, it never refers to a married woman. Thirdly, the context requires the miraculous. It has to be something convincing. And finally, the flaw of the entire context that begins in chapter 7 and ends in chapter 12 of this section of Isaiah demands a virgin birth. Chapter 7, Emmanuel is to be born. Chapter 9, he's viewed as being born. In chapter 11, he's viewed as reigning on David's throne. The point of this sign of the virgin birth is the house of David cannot lose its identity, nor can it be deposed ever until the birth of a virgin born son. That is the promise of the house of David. The house of David cannot be deposed and replaced by another. The house of David cannot lose its identity until the birth of a virgin-born son. Again, this requires the Messiah to be born of a virgin sometime before the year 70 AD. Now, getting back to the problems that we are attacked with on this passage, what good is this promise doing to Ahaz? And we should be able to answer that. After all, if you came to me and said, I'm worried about this and this, and I said, please don't worry, I will give you a reason not to worry. 700 years from now, such and such is going to happen. That's not apt to give you a whole lot of comfort. Not one bit. What good is that going to do you? But there is a sign for Ahaz as well. But again, because English does not make distinctions between the singular and the plural pronoun, we miss it. Again, verses 10 through 12, the singular was used. Ahaz was offered a sign he refused. 
Because the 1314, the plural is used. The sign of the virgin birth is the sign to the house of David. But in verses 15 through 17, the singular is used again. Now he is addressing Ahaz again and giving him a sign personally. In particular, verse 16, For before the child shall know and to refuse the evil and choose the good, the line whose two kings will fall shall be forsaken. Now verse 16, the word child is a Hebrew word that refers to someone that is a year old minimally and does not refer to the son of verse 14. But it's a different word altogether. However, it does use a definite article as the child, and again the first rule of Hebrew grammar is to find a child that was mentioned in the immediate context. But go back to verse 3. There was a son mentioned in the immediate context, Isaiah's son. There was a reason why God demanded of Isaiah that he bring his son before Ahaz. While for the house of David the sign is going to be the virgin birth, for Ahaz it's the sign is going to be Isaiah's own son. Isaiah's little boy, before he is old enough to make moral choices, before he will be old enough to choose the good and refuse the evil, the two kings that are conspiring against him will both be off their thrones. And within three years, this prophecy was indeed fulfilled. The two kings no longer were kings, they were deposed by the Assyrian Empire. So rather than trying to solve the problem of Isaiah 714 by a um, double fulfillment, it's better to see this double reference. The first block is verses 13 and 14 where the plural pronoun is used. That deals with a distant event, the virgin birth of the Messiah only. But then verses 15 through 17 deal with a more immediate event and the pronoun changes in the Hebrew text and that deals with prophecy fulfilled in the immediate future. One more point we should point out that the Septuagint, which was a Jewish translation, meaning a translation by Jews of the Old Testament into Greek, about 200 BC, before the issue of the Messiahship of Jesus ever came up, when they came to Isaiah 7.14, they used the Greek word meaning Parthenos, which is a Greek word that clearly, exclusively means virgin. So at least the Jews of 200 BC, living a lot closer to Isaiah's day than our modern rabbis do, understood this to refer specifically to a virgin birth. That concludes the teaching by Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of Ariel Ministries, Ariel.org, and that's from his teaching entitled Messianic Christology, What the Old Testament Taught About Messiah. And if you'd like to hear more about that, you can certainly go to Ariel.org and order a copy of the complete set. And this has been reproduced and posted with permission.